0: They think they've got the podiums. They have now. Let's get started.
1: Another race for the world's greatest driver, Juan Manuel Banjo. Former world champion Jim Clark left into the lead. That's Clark Lotus going like a bomb. And James Hunt is the world champion by just one
2: single point. By being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing
1: driver. And that is Michael Schumacher ahead, the world champion. To become a four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, champion
0: of the world. That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Max Verstappen is champion of the world. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of F1 in Review 2023. I'm Tom Claibon, and as ever I'm joined by Tristan Fancourt and Angus Gallagher as you look back at round 2 of this season, the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. And let's start with the most talked about, dare I say controversial moments of this weekend. Fernando Alonso finishing in P3, qualified there on Saturday but after a good yet illegal start and being overpowered by the Red Bull monster that is the constructor this year. He was there in P3 but we had to wait hours. Was after the race had finished to see whether he was going to be there or not in terms of collecting the points and uh, the grits and glams of that. This is all the questions surrounding whether Aston Martin had served a penalty correctly, owing to that legal start I mentioned earlier. So, Tristan, what do you make of this general palaver we saw this weekend?
1: i Don't know. It, it shined a pretty poor light on the FIA and, and not really on the stewards because when you when you review the the explanation document that was. Uh, sent out alongside the reversal of the decision to give the third place on the podium to George Russell and give it back to Alonso. Then a slightly odd picture I think starts emerging from the discussions that happened within the FIA that led to the the stewards giving this penalty to Alonso during the the race, um, and that's the the additional sort of ten seconds that came at the end due to the the rear uh, jack touching the car before the, well the the stewards thought they were allowed to so there was a supposedly an agreement the fia says the stewards says there's a, a new agreement between us and the drivers that if someone gets a five second penalty that they take during their pit stop no one is allowed to touch the car during that five seconds right? no one's allowed to touch it you can look at the car just can't touch it it's okay leave it and that wasn't actually the case no such agreement had been been made and there had been previous judicial precedents set by the stewards that the the rear jack could in fact touch the car couldn't jack him up but could engage the you know jack get get it ready to to jack up the car when that five seconds lit had lifted right the idea being you're not actually gaining an advantage by having it ready. So you wait your five seconds, and then boom, you jack the car up, change the tires, gone. Now the stewards believed that that was not not allowed uh, because the FIA told them so. <laughs> they said their agreement, and it turns out they didn't have the agreement at all. So the uh, the Aston Martin a delegation that went to reverse the the penalty pointed at seven previous. Uh, times that uh, the rear jack had touched the car and not um, received a penalty so clearly yet again we're into this sort of gray area disputing the rules with the FIA when it's just not clear and I think we've we've said this so many times that we just need clarity over what the rules are another example and I hate to just digress slightly was the the rules to do with White lines in Jeddah because often you can't actually go over the white lines in Jeddah because if you get all four tires over the the, the white lines, you'll actually be inside of a wall. Things will be going badly wrong. So they they actually re- revised the rules to say that in certain sections you're not actually allowed to have one tire go across the white line. Which I, I mean, am I just maybe may, am I just being you know? being particular about this or is there some logic to to my sense which is you have one rule and you stick to it if it's all four tires it's all four tires if it's one tire it's it's one tire you can't just pick and change those things for the for the different tracks because you happen to have a track that had no runoff area and it's the same with this jack thing you know you, you see the one rule or the other either no one can touch the car or there are specific people that can and they've just got to get that very clear. Otherwise, this sort of stuff happens, and it's an absolute mess. I don't know what. What do you think? Am I am am I just being too particular about this? And we can have these fluid rules, or should there be consistency?
2: It's a tricky one. We always long for consistency, don't we? And I think that I find this in football when they all players ask for consistency from referees. It is technically impossible to be consistent as a human being because there are so many factors which affect your decisions Based and this can be the case for F1 stewards I think what we want, I don't care about consistency as much as I care about clarity I just want and I don't want the dramatic effect of something to be ruined I think the fact that Fernando Alonso got this 100th podium a brilliant result, back to back podium for the Aston Martin team and then he didn't have it but then they appealed it so he did have it and it's just it's, it just doesn't speak clarity it doesn't it just speaks confusion and I think that's the main thing and it's really frustrating how this is not the first time we on this podcast have gone on about the FIA their decision making how they go about things um, like it seems to pop up a depressing amount and whether that's because we focus on it a lot. Or whether it's because they're not very good at their jobs, I couldn't really say at this point, but it feels like both. It feels like either i I just don't know. I just want some clarity. And I think it's the classic case again of and i I get they sometimes they physically or in terms of time deadlines, they literally cannot um solve these before the end of a race. I get that, and they have to look into things, but for us to be waiting. For like two, three hours after the race, or not even waiting because we thought the decision had been made, and then two, three hours later, the decision had been unmade. Um, it's just it doesn't scream professionalism, to be honest with you. It just screams inconsistency and a lack of judgment. And as much as I'd, I think, as much as I'd love to go into the FIA stewards' room and sort of grab someone, shake them, and say, "What are you doing? Why are you not?" Doing hmm. so, solving these decisions properly, we can't do that. But surely it needs someone to come out. But there's been, if I go back to the football analogy again, there's been constant chatter over the last year or two for referees to come out and do post-match interviews like players or managers would do and explain their decisions and be honest with the public. Why can't FIA stewards do this? Come out and. I I can't recall an occasion we've seen this I could one could be slipping my mind I don't know if you guys would, would be able to think of one but but when um when stewards come out and explain the decisions to the public Michael Massey used to do it a little bit but we know how that all ended um I think we just appreciate that honesty because sometimes it it seems like they don't have a flipping clue what they're doing and I wouldn't have a flipping clue well, how they're making these decisions. Like, what do you do? You guys think they should be held more accountable for this? Because it's looking like, based on some of their decisions, they should be start Be made more accountable.
0: I would say so. Yeah, I've long said I'd like to see a bit more accountability from the stewards, the FAA, in a, a cool, clear and calm situation where they can do it out of the heat of the battle. I didn't like the situation where we had a direct communication in the fight, if you will, between constructors and Michael Massey. We saw how that ended, as you say. But at the moment, we just get a comment from the FAA, a large you know, sheet of paper or two to say, this is the situation, this is what we've done, and this is why we've come to a conclusion, which is fine. It's better than nothing. Nothing, but I'd like to see a bit more. I'd like to see somebody who's actually made that final decision, or indeed a group of people. We know that the duty uh, is now being shared between multiple people, or indeed were post the Abu Dhabi uh, situation. I'd like to see someone give a comment. We know that press conferences happen in terms of drivers and team principals and those involved as well. It's not like everyone else aside from the drivers and Christian Horner, for example, if you're looking at Red Bull, are gagged. They very much do speak their minds and say what they want via however they choose to do that, be that social media or media outlets, etc. So I don't see why we can't see a situation where the stewards and the FIA do something similar because... They seem here to be quite blindsided by quite an obvious issue, really a commonplace situation where a team has to go and serve a penalty and they have to go and serve it in a certain way. This is not a new issue, a new problem, a new conundrum. This has been happening for many a time. you know last race, for example, Ocon, for example, was serving so many penalties. there was clear examples in this season of how it was meant to be done, but seemingly the FIA aren't communicating very well to the stewards or vice versa or people aren't too clear about what the actual rules are and you can tolerate that to an extent when it comes to the nuances of Formula One if you're let's say diehard fans like we are but Formula One is very much going on a surge rightly so to recruit more fans to get more people interested from different continents uh, of this world we live on but this a complication, needless complication, this dithering, this lack of clarity and certainty isn't going to do that any good whatsoever. You can put as many Drive to Survive episodes you want out there, you can put as many sprint races as you want out there, but if there's not clear, calm, cool decision making and clarity about what the rules are, I appreciate there is complexity at time, then you are got to go and drive those people away. So We say this so often, we've been saying this for a number of years now, there needs to be some clarity, there needs to be decent consistent decision making and we're seeing far too many errors in my liking so early on in the season and as I say a a more commonplace issue but I've always been one who's been, let's say, wanting change or being harsh on the FA and stewards. Do you concur Tristan or am I being as I say there a bit too sledgehammer to break a nut shall we say? It's very
1: difficult to know how you keep them to account. I think think in this particular case it's Slightly unfair to suggest that the stewards were in any way necessarily at fault here, because they were enacting on a similar rule to that that we, what we saw applied to Ocon in the previous race, and then within the um, within the stewards' uh, published memo, which they do send out, they do explain why they gave their reasoning. If you if you actually care that much, and, and I do. I go find them. <laughs> um, so that sort of is the answer to Angus's thing. Um but you know, they they do say within it that there was no clear agreement between the drivers and the teams that the rear jack couldn't touch the car. And then within this they've said Um that well, they, they, OK, I'll, I'll read you exactly what they said just for clarity. We concluded that there was no clear agreement, as was suggested to the stewards previously, that could be re- relied upon to determine that parties had agreed that a jack touching a car would amount to working on the car. Right. So that, that says they were told this agreement had taken place. They enacted on that rule. And they've admitted that was you know, that that was mistaken, and they've reversed it. Right, that's fair enough. Actually, I think that is pretty good accountability. Don't you? I think that's you know that's exactly what the idea is. But then the question then becomes: Well, what's the FIA telling the stewards? Because this is one of those occasions where it came out right that they they got it wrong. But this now raises questions about these agreements that occur between the drivers and the FIA. You know, let's if I was a driver. I'd be saying... Well, hold on a minute. We didn't agree some other things... Yet. Have you already told the, the stewards... That they're allowed to... To rule on those basis? So... Again, this muddies the water... In a, in a way that is... Just, it raises many more questions... And you lose trust in... The overarching body... That's supposed to... Keep the sa- the sport safe and also within you know a set standard and and certain parameters and then if you can't do that then it's not formula one i mean formula one is all about having a book and you build a car to that book and that formula and if you start muddling the waters and start mixing the formula up halfway through then it, it kind of dilutes the sport a bit so this is a real tricky one and it's a real shame don't you think that in a in a in a weekend that was full of really interesting driving action and and events and, you know, gossip and all that sort of stuff, we're stuck yet again talking about rules.
0: Yeah, I mean I don't want to go and sort of break any rules here or expose myself, but I'm not really a huge fan of talking about rules. It's very much the last thing I want to talk about when it comes to Formula 1, aside from the obvious bits. But you're very right. It's something we have to talk about. There needs to be more clarity. And on that point, in terms of the driver's agreement with the stewards, would something like a publication, a full list in terms of uh, publication of that full list to the public or indeed fans who want to see it, would that be a middle ground, a third way of holding people accountable, getting that clarity in place without exposing everything behind the curtain that is the rules of Formula One or is that a bit too black and white, shall we say?
2: I think it would go some way to fitting that accountability or ticking that accountability box. Um but yeah, I think it's a really tricky one. I love how we, we sort of sit here as like, uh, as I mean, I'm sure we consider ourselves experts, uh, to a certain degree. Um, but then I always think,
0: yeah, 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 yeah.
2: Um, but I also think if we were sat there in the, that situation, what would we be doing to, uh, to bring about the sort of the change in clarity or accountability. I can't say I have the answers, but yeah, some, some sort of, something like that. Without, it's interesting you use the phrase going behind the curtain um, because mm. going behind the curtain is not something which the FIA has ever really let happen, to be honest. They like their, like their secretive ways.
1: Well, last time we went around that, like behind the curtain was the the, do you remember the radio messages between the race director and the teams. They kind of allowed that to happen and we started yeah. to hear that and then, you know how that
2: ended? Oh, yeah. Yes, mm. that ended in, yeah, massive controversy. Um, so based on that, they may be a bit reticent to uh to do that again, right?
1: Yeah, I think they, one of the things they could perhaps do is publish minutes, in some essence, like of, of minutes after a, a meeting. You know, you have a meeting with the team and you say, right, well, this was agreed. And you go out of the meeting and you say, during this meeting, we discussed these four points. And we decided the actions from these points was A, B, and C, and D. And the teams go, yes, we all agree that we agreed Mm. to do this going forward. If they'd done that, then this would have been caught in the net. Because clearly, the FIA and the teams came out of the meeting and hadn't reached an agreement
0: yes that is true and i think really when it comes to an issue like porpoising as well that was one of those where we were told that this could happen that might happen things were being discussed and considered which is fine to hear about to hear that something's being done about what was a safety issue which hopefully is now being less of a a severe issue and somewhat close to being solved but I'd much rather hear about something being done about practical steps that are going forward rather than something that's being considered or floated out there or something like that. And it's one of those where I'm quite happy for the FIA to go and have their quote-unquote secretive ways to a point, but I would also like them to be held accountable and like them to be able to go and show us as fans, as viewers, indeed those involved with teams as well, about what they need to know. And I feel, going back to my earlier point, this is one of those things that We do really need to know about, teams need to know about as well. A simple issue of, is touching the car working on the car? Because I thought, for example, that was the case. Touching the car was working on the car. I thought that right up until the point they reinstated Fernando Alonso onto P3. So I think we'll see a tightening of the regulation. We often see, you know, after a disaster, that something decent happens from that in terms of Formula One, I guess, in terms of wider society as well. So he's hoping that this has now been caught in the net as we hope and we don't see a repetition of... What were seemingly solved issues from one person to another not being solved issues and we're having to start off this podcast talking about regulations and rules and each that and the other really not talking about Fernando Alonso doing a a cracking drive and perhaps being hampered by a semi-illegal start if you will but seemingly being the biggest threat to Red Bull if you uh, concur or not. I'm going to
1: defer to our resident Alonso expert uh, in Angus to kick us off with
2: Alonso's performance Wee. this weekend. I was waiting to start the Alonso loving. I can't lie. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I mean, oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, what, what more can you say? You got Possibly more. Teacher, yeah. The more that can be said, will be the the. the yeah. <laughs> The more that can be said will be the more that we say throughout the season undoubtedly because he is very good and this will continue. But um, but no, um, I can't lie, when I saw him take the lead into turn one on lap one, I thought, wow, my bold prediction is going to come true straight away in race two. Can't wait. Um, it wasn't to be because the Aston Martin is not yet on the level of the Red Bull. It still appears to be up there in terms of the class of the field behind the Red Bull, I think that's one thing that's been established this weekend mm-hmm. based on the first couple of races yes admittedly, different type of track street circuit, you know, a bit of an anomaly compared to say a more traditional circuit like Bahrain or even ones that might come up like I don't know, uh, Spain Catalonia or Silverstone but he's done another stellar job, I can't I can't fault the man um, as I'll repeat from last week a literal, a literal 41-year-old man being very good at driving racing cars. Um, you don't see that very often in terms of uh, his age. Um, continues to deliver. I think one thing which perhaps has gone under the radar, say under the radar, hasn't been mentioned, is that forget that he is in a new team. Now, think of drivers who struggle to settle in new teams. There are, there are contrasting examples. Some struggle. If we look at more recent examples, Daniel Ricciardo would fit in that category. Some who excel pretty quickly. Mm. So someone like Charles Leclerc at Ferrari or George Russell at Mercedes. Um, but then someone else who struggled would perhaps be, I mean off the top of my head, someone like, I don't know, Esteban Ocon when he first came into Renault or Alpine. Um, or what? even Perez at Red Bull a little bit. Uh, or a- so Albon at Red Bull. A- a long- <laughs> yeah.
0: Gazzini, yes, or, or Bull, Albon
2: at Red Bull. Yeah, but well, Alonso is settled in thing. straight away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Good good <laughs> points. Um, but Alonso, putting that to one side, he's gone into Aston Martin, absolutely tearing it up, doing brilliantly. Um, and yes, he's very experienced. Yes, he's very good. Yes, he's been in Formula One for two years less than I've been alive. But at the same time, he's done a sterling job. He's gone to his new team and... Yeah, I'm I'm gonna run out of superlatives for him after the first three or four weeks <laughs> th- honestly. Th- um, and then- <laughs> yes, <a> wonderful spell binding, <laughs> excellent. <Yeah>. Um <laughs> simile dictionaries but, you just um, keep going. <laughs> yeah, and I will finish I will finish my Alonso Lovin by once again, two races in a row. This must be a record for credit to Lance Stroll Ometer, Um <laughs> because again, mm-hmm. I thought he was unlucky, his engine blowing up when he's in a strong position, he has this. I never really realised this till maybe last year. He's actually a very good starter. Like he, in terms of opening lap, he, yeah. I mean, he, he, admittedly, you you would you, you you'd have a higher average um, positions gained on lap one if you start constantly <laughs> outside the top ten. But at the same time, he clearly has a little bit of a like a sort of a a, um, a knowledge or a, a sort of a feeling for first lap and those tight. Um, tight spaces when all 20 cars are covered by a picnic blankets effectively. So he again did that with his brilliant pass on science on lap 1 uh in this race and would have arguably been in contention for a top 5 finish had it not been for his engine uh giving up on him. So I want to give a little bit of credit to Lance Stroll again because also he was he was closer in qualifying. He was only 2 tenths off Alonso an this time. So um mm-hmm. credit to him. But uh, yeah, great weekend for Aston Martin. Um, can they win a race this year? I think so, possibly.
1: Do you think so? I don't think so. I'm. I'm sorry. I just don't think so. Without something bizarre happening, no. I think. I think it's not as easy as that. But a, a solid third place uh, for Alonso. Absolutely insane, um, just performance from him. He he did get a little bit lucky, I guess. Um, getting. Starting in what should have been third, except from Ferrari deciding to lose two races in a row (laughs) after one race um, with Charles Leclerc having a penalty. That's an absolute shame. And, um, you know, they always say that one man's loss is another man's gain. And absolutely, Charles Leclerc went backwards. And Alonso starting second. And as you say, take the lead for a moment. I, I had sort of butterflies in my tummy, just like this when we were watching Brazil last year. And it was Kevin Magnussen, um leading a race very briefly. Uh, very, very exciting. Um, in the same way that I was watching Alonso. But I had that same sort of feeling um, then, as I did back when we were watching Brazil. That is, unfortunately, he's going to get swallowed up. And unfortunately, you know, Perez did swallow him back up. Um, uh, but Alonso stuck behind him for such a long time. That's one of the things to note. Even though Red Bull was so much faster... This weekend, a second a lap faster. It's an absolutely almighty car, that Red Bull. Alonso had, you know, the talent and the sense to use that Red Bull to pull him away from the rest of the pack. And it was a bit of a shame that Stroll's DNF... Allowed the forced the, the pack to bunch back up again behind the safety car because it kind of undid all that really good work and that made it easier for Max to get through, for example, as well. But hey, credit where credit's due. That that was some performance from Alonso you know, sticking behind that Red Bull and just eighty-two percent of this track is at full throttle. I think is what the statistic I heard um, over the weekend. And so he basically just used <laughs> Perez as a as a as a DRS machine and uh, as a as a uh, you know uh, a air punching device so that he could stick behind and you know he most of the time he was sort of 0.6, 0.4, 0.7 behind and then eventually his tires sort of dropped off and he dropped back a bit um but that that's not to say that alonso wasn't doing the very best he could and his talent really shone through and i know stroll did a great job but kaiki <laughs> It's clear to me that that Alonso still is the number one driver in that team. You know, it's funny because Alonso, Alonso said, "Ah, oh, Stroll, he is world championship material," and and that oh, yeah. yeah. But also, you you're you're beating him. You're beating him. So uh, you know, it, it's sort of true, but also not because there can only be well, one world champion. So it's sort of like. Yes, he's World Championship material, as long as the other people in front of him, including myself, weren't here. Um, <laughs> which is... <laughs> I guess you have to say things like that if your boss's son um, you know, is your, is your uh, teammate. But I must admit, I was surprised how good and how long Alonso stayed in second place. I'm surprised he actually made it into first place for a while. Um, but there's no doubt in my mind that I think aston martin are probably at this precise moment second best team on the grid mm-hmm. uh, it's a shame that they're now drawing in points with mercedes because of that uh you know that's that retirement from stroll but then get their, consi- their consistency down and things like that then then i think they're in for a shot because ferrari's out of it mercedes is out of it yep and Yep. that Aston Martin was pulling away from everyone else. So yeah, if if, if Perez had, you know, had had his drivetrain go or something like that, another reliability issue, then yeah, absolutely, they can definitely get that win. But I don't necessarily think they're going to because that, that the odds of that happening are very limited and Perez demonstrated that he could match Verstappen's pace.
0: Hmm. That was frightening, really, if you're Lance or Lawrence Stroll, indeed anyone at Aston Martin. But I do think that an Aston Martin win this season is inevitable. I think we're going to see somebody else than Red Bull win a race owing to reliability issues, punches, spinning off, something. We always see the best teams have a really bad day. We saw that with Mercedes, for example, when they decided to go and have their retro weekend, it went horribly wrong. You know, even the best falter at times. So I think. There's going to be an occasion where, let's say, going back to Silverson last year, something happens to Verstappen and Perez is not nowhere to be seen, but not at the very front of the grids. And currently speaking, Alonso is in the second best car. On form, probably one of the best drivers as well. I'm still so surprised how well he's doing at the age of 41. We've seen uh, former greats of the sport, Kimi Raikkonen, for example, fade away at that age. Sebastian Vettel call it a day before that as well. We've seen many a driver just not be able to go and hit the heights they formerly did when they are literally, you know, over 40 years old are going on to that so it is incredible really but I think for Stroll this is going to be quite a test isn't it really because you've got Alonso in form and a purple patch somebody who's leading the fight for that team and ultimately as we know where you finish in the constructors is more important versus where you finish in the drivers championship for example so look at the the distance now between Alonso and Stroll not only in points but also in confidence and ability this could be very difficult for Stroll to crawl that back and how will Stroll deal with that because so often previously when he's been at Aston Martin, Things have very much been at his disposal. He's been able to control things to a certain degree. I mean that by so far as it, it didn't work out. at Williams, for example, he went to a new team owing to his wealth behind him. Congratulations. Vettel wasn't really firing on all cylinders last year. When he was at the sport, he was doing fine, well at, at points as well. But the consistency wasn't there. So I'd say this is the biggest threat. To, to Lance Stroll that he's ever had going into the sport. He's established himself now. Congratulations. He's done well. But if these reliability issues continue, if he's not able to match Alonso near, dare I say, pound for pound, owing to, let's say, a discrepancy in their ability, but also Mercedes, who are looking a lot better, Ferrari, who can't discount, Alpine look very solid as well. You know, there's a lot to deal with there. And how will he cope with that? Because we're to see that, really. But do you think that Stroll will crumble under the pressure from within, really, when it comes to Alonso and elsewhere? Or could he actually come back bigger and better, particularly after how well he's done to even be on the grid for the first two races owing to his accident, of course?
2: I think it's possible that this might drive him on uh, even further. I mean, you'd hope so. He's done seven years, six years in the sport. You'd hope that in year seven, he would finally kick on. Um, and if anyone is going to kick on and drive him on it would be the arrival of a driver who's actually still in his prime you could argue to try and take away that mantle from him an aging declining sebastian vettel wasn't exactly the uh, the competition that would knock stroll off any sort of perch that he may have had um but fernando alonso is a a genuine genuine threat um which is funny, saying a threat because he's your teammate. And you're supposed to work together, but that's kind of that's kind of how the dynamics work in Formula One sometimes. Um, you've also got. I wonder if you've got a situation where it's almost like Alonso is doing his thing, and then Stroll thinks that he has to try and win his boss's approval, basically his dad's approval. It's almost like Alonso is a threat to a threat to his uh, how his dad sees him, his estimation um, in his dad's eyes. So. I think in a strange kind of way, this could be something to galvanise Stroll and make him pick up his pace. You could argue it started to do that a little bit based on the first two races. You could say that if he can do this with pins and stuff in his wrist, then, you know, it might actually be a sign of something good to come in the near future. It'd be very interesting to see because Stroll Stroll has sort of always just been there in Formula 1. Like He's there, he's driving... As you, sh- as you should, as you should, it's Formula One. If he's not driving, you're a little bit worried, aren't you? But he's just sort of like going along, plodding along. Um, do you he took a pole position? It feels like years ago now, but he did once, uh, in Turkey. He's got a couple of podiums to show for it, but you'd think that he needs to start like delivering something. But he's actually got a car now where he can deliver something and he has the possibility to deliver something because the car is incredibly fast. Um, and by the way, did you know? I just found out his name. His full name is Lance Jacob Strulevich. Fair <laughs> oh enough. <well>. Um,
1: <laughs> um, I didn't. I didn't know that. No, I, I. I don't know. It's an interesting dynamic. I think at this precise moment, the team is pretty happy with how things are going. I think Stroll and Papa Stroll are obviously very pleased with Alonso. I mean, it's it's always going to be very mm. difficult for Aston Martin management because they're going to have this weird balance, right? Where they want basically two incredible drivers and they know that as a result of that, one is going to be better than the other. And at this precise moment, Alonso is a fierce, fierce driver, a man that has really got the bit between his teeth this year. And it's so good to see him so happy as well. We like happy Nando. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant to see. And, I think whilst that continues, then I think it's going to be all right. I think if Alonso is beating Stroll through outright performance, you know, beats him in qualifying, gets off the line, runs off and does his own thing, I think that's going to be okay. I think the real issue is going to be when you, you kind of saw it in the first race, when Stroll had that great start, kind of overcooked it at the first corner and hit well it actually wasn't that first corner but it was um, later a bit later on it was turn two or turn three hit alonzo and alonzo was like oh who was hitting me get that man a penalty mm-hmm. and they were like uh yep, we're looking at it and then he was like yeah has, has the fia penalized the the person that hit me yet and they were like uh mm, not yet <laughs> and uh you know trying to avoid the fact <laughs> that it was uh it was stroll that hit him and so i think moments like that are going to be when things rise up right when when those two are together because fair play to stroll I guess as a as a driver you're you're never going to give an inch that you don't have to and Alonso it's the kind of man that you give him an inch takes a mile and he will get past you and i feel like it, you know that 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 sort of relationship can develop where eventually you just you lose tolerance for your teammate as you do everyone else so I think mm. Alonso's drive will be staying out of, of Stroll's way just by beating him consistently. You can't argue with that ever. Uh, you know, if Stroll wants to beat Alonso, well, he's got to out-qualify him, got to out-race him, out him. And then I think in this case, that's protecting their relationship by the fact that Stroll is two, three places behind him. It's going to be interesting to see how it develops going forward. But you mentioned Turkey thinking about that question that holistic question is can they win a race i think rain or monaco is probably their best chance this season if alonso Mm -hmm. can get pole in monaco i think they've won it and if it rains then maybe that would be a great opportunity until then
0: I think Red Bull going to sort of stop them from doing so. Interesting one to keep an eye on in terms of the internal dynamics, and also how they do on track as well are they here to stay in P2? We'll wait and see but first of all we've got to go and look at the very top of the grid of course the team that's going to be staying there for a long period of time we think another flawless race for Red Bull particularly for Perez as well he qualified in P1 yet again converted at this time meanwhile Max Verstappen did the simple old job of rising from P15 to P2. What do you make of that? Then there may be trouble in paradise in terms of the comments afterwards. But on track, everything's rosy for sure.
2: Yes, I mean they're quite good, aren't they? This Red Bull lot—they're rather good. They uh, win races. They have a fast car. Pretty easy, really. It's yes, they just—they just got this class of field right now. A um, little bit terrifying, considering they're supposed to have a reduction in wind tunnel time after their punishment for the cost cap last season and there is an argument to say that that will find itself taking in more of an effect later in the season when as the development race hots up um, the time they lose from the wind tunnel reduction and the, uh, the, re- the research and development reduction, that's when it will bite more, but at the same time how are they this fast, despite having the punishments? Like, what on earth's going on? It's um, another Adrian Newey masterclass. Let's be honest; he's designed an absolute belter of a car. Um, you got two drivers who've got one, two in the first two races. Max Verstappen. I mean, I've spoken about this before about how when you when you work hard and your luck's there, you make your own luck. Uh, Lewis Hamilton always seemed to have it where. He'd be in a race and a situation would just turn on its head, but they would turn his way, just, you know, without him needing to do much. One example I think of of that is when, it was at Imola a couple of years ago, when he crashed in the rain, dropped down to like 10th, and then the red flag came out, but they put the, the positions back. Um, they put everyone back on the lead lap, so he basically came from 10th through to 2nd, even though he was a lap down. Stuff like that just used to happen to him. Verstappen on Sunday... In about what eighth ninth place, he'd made good progress in the first fifteen laps. Some people pit, safety car comes out, he gets a free stop, rises to P four, just like that. It just happens when you're 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 doing well. It just seems your luck seems to come your way, and it's what it did for him on uh, on Sunday. Fair play to Perez for uh, holding off for the win when Verstappen got to second with like half the race to go. I thought, yeah, Perez is toast. Perez is going to. Uh, have to accept that his pace won't be as good as Verstappen's but he held his own so fair play to him um but yeah Red Bulls have a very quick car i think people at the same time people saying that they could win every race this year i mean that has never happened in Formula one history as far as i'm aware the closest it came i mean Mercedes won like 19 out of 21 races a couple of years ago uh in when or in the Rosberg and Hamilton era there was a famous McLaren with Ayrton Seller and Alain Prost where the, in 1988 they won 15 out of 16 races. The only race they didn't win was because a lapped car crashed into Senna whilst he was leading and Ferrari won instead. Mm. Could Red Bull win all 23 races? Sod's law says that at some point, mm. like you mentioned Tristan, like there'll be rain or there'll be a reliability problem or Alonso will get pole in Monaco or something like that. Um but it's looking very ominous uh, so far for Red Bull. 49 points clear after two races. Congratulations to the world champions of 2023.
0: Yeah, interesting, isn't it? We see comments like fastest car on the grid and we're seeing more internal battles at Red Bull versus anybody else, which shows really the, the scale of dominance they have at the moment. And fair play to Perez as well. They've been Question marks over him, and rightly so. That were amplified by the drive to survive series I've recently finished about whether he was good enough, whether he was all this, whether he was all that. But I think this race fully showed that, really. And also showed that after he's nailed that contract down, he's not here to be a team player all the time. He wants exactly the same information as Max Verstappen. He wants to win races. He's here for himself as much as everybody else when the stars align in that regard. And we talked about internal team dynamics at Aston Martin. I think this is one to really keep an eye on because you saw the look, the stony look on Josh Verstappen's face when Perez was jumping into the crowd. You saw the comments or heard them or both by Verstappen himself of, I'm not here to be P2 and this, that and the other. I think, I think, Nico Rosberg, not somebody I normally agree with when it comes to most things, but he really nailed it when he said that Verstappen needs to be more gracious. Missing team meetings, for example, when you're round two of this uh, season is just, just unfair on the team, really, because yes, they're dominating at the moment. Yes, they probably do have one of the fastest cars ever in Formula One, judging by how quickly they are able to ascend from P15 to P2. But respect really is important i think if this one festers and becomes semi-nasty as it could if perez is uh going into this purple patch of form as he is this could be one to to look into and this could be something where we see uh a mercedes 2.0 with a team semi combusting in on itself owing to two drivers who are willing to to give an inch and on this occasion very glad to see that perez was able to go and convert that p1 rightfully so but i do fear eventually we're going to go and see a Perez, this is, insert name, you need to do this, you need to do that, and Sparks will fly. But um, maybe I'm over-dramatising after just round two of the season, but Tristan, do you see potential trouble in paradise? Are Red Bull their own worst enemy potentially moving forwards?
1: It was really interesting you spoke about that Nico Rosberg uh, quote. Uh, I also saw it, but I disagreed with his analysis. Look, Max was really unwell over the last week. not sure if you caught that. He uh, had a stomach bug and it actually delayed him turning up at the circuit. And as a result, when he got there, he was still resting and the team and him agreed mutually not to go to a team meeting. So I think that's fine. Um, The team is happy with it. He's happy with it. You know, he clearly needed a rest. Um, Put on his social media that he was feeling a bit better by... By the time, sort of free practice, and um, eventually, as you as you saw, he was still able to do very well um, in the race. So I, I I don't know. I I think perhaps it's it's an over analysis of a of a thing that's not there yet. What was there, however, was a very interesting dynamic with the fastest lap point. When Max said, "You know what's happening mm. with the fastest lap," his team said to him, "We're not concerned about the fastest lap," and he said, "Well, I am." And, of course, he's concerned about the fastest lap. That fastest lap point that he went on to get <laughs> means that he is now still ahead of Perez. If Perez, who was holding it before he went for that uh, fastest lap, had gained that extra point, then it would be actually Perez leading the championship. So, you know, there, there, there is always going to be an interesting dynamic there. It looks like it, it, The there is these this want of dramatization because of what we've seen between Rosberg and Hamilton. And I mean, that, that was a particularly spicy relationship. And, you know, there was no getting away from the fact that they dislike each other now because of it, which is a real shame because they were friends growing up. But I think, Mm. I think Perez knows that, you know, whether, whether, whether or not Max is ahead of him or, or behind him, his fight is, is always going to be with him keeping the Red Bull seat. Because Max, if circumstances had allowed it, would have probably been in pole position and probably won the race. It was only because he had reliability issues. Now, there are reliability issues with that Red Bull car, and Paris even said so. So this may turn into a really interesting year, whereby one driver just gets luckier than the other. Looking back at, for example, the Bottas-Hamilton years, I think we can safely say that Bottas had all of the bad luck whether or not it was wheel nuts not coming off or engines failing or you know tapping other cars or barriers and the whole front suspension snapping off and then you see hamilton going into the the gravel and you know being able to reverse out at, at monza fine or you know at, or having pure reliability excellent reliability issues you know, and, and things like and, you know all these i suppose the good luck um, on his side, I think we'll be. It'll be interesting to see whether or not there's an in, there's a dynamic of that going into the team, whether or not because of the reliability mm-hmm. of that Red Bull, one driver just gets more favoured than the other by circumstances outside of their pure talent, and that could cause real problems for Jos Verstappen. I mean, heaven forbid Max loses the lead. What's oh, you know, <laughs> I think they have to put a restraining order on him and um, not allow him into the into the. Um, into the paddock. I mean, I don't think he should be there anyway. I strongly dislike the man. Um, and if you've ever seen that interview with Max when he's talking about his childhood, if you haven't seen that, go look it up because the way he talks about his father and his way his father used to call him, you know, very very nasty things growing up because he got second place, for example. I mean, that that is pretty detestable in my in my eyes. But the Red Bull car, going back to the very very first question you posed, Tom, for this segment. Mm-hmm is absolutely phenomenal in all areas. It was a second a lap faster than the next best car in this case the Aston Martins. They're running smaller and flatter wings than anyone else, which means that they are not producing so much drag. So they are getting what's known as free downforce from their floor. Now I don't know if you know this but Adrian Newey, he studied and um and, and did his uh, engineering degrees on downforce from floors so that that's his speciality okay. um mm-hmm. using that 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 floor to create you know free downforce and sucking the car to the ground and that's that is what he does really well and it seems like, yet again, he's, he's demonstrating his engineering prowess in this particular area because no one else is, is being able to run wings that, that small as Red Bull is while still being able to corner as quickly. So Red Bull are a threat in all areas. They have absolute top speed. They are producing the least amount of drag. And they're able to corner really well. So this is just a case where this car is, is not weak. Not weak at the moment in any area. Now, maybe on a windy day it could well be, but even then, the fact it hasn't got very big wing you know, a very big rear wing means that it's probably not gonna be countered by that either. I'm 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 struggling to think of a scenario where they'll have a problem. Everyone else, Aston Martin, Mercedes, Ferrari were having to run cars that produce more drag than Red Bull. And as a result are slower.
0: Do you think we're entering a Red Bull period of dominance as we did in the early 2010s, as Mercedes had done prior to them? Or is that too early to say, do you think? Particularly after we consider they won the last two championships or at least one of them.
2: Yes, simply that. Because they're just, yeah, 16 answers. They're just looking incredibly good. Um, and I think this is the way that Formula 1 has been for quite a long time now, where a team gets on... Gets a, a step up with their dominance, um, with their car in a certain point of a like at the start of a reg- set of regulations, and they just maintain that dominance. And then the thing that brings the cars close together is there's the regulations maintained for a while. That means that the field then closes up gradually, um, but sometimes the gra- the closing up can take a while, and I think that's just a sad fact of where we are with the the. The current pecking order of the sport. Um, so I, th- I think also when you've got, like how Mercedes had the outstanding car of their period and also the outstanding driver in Lewis Hamilton, just like Red Bull mm. had the outstanding car of their period and the outstanding driver in Sebastian Vettel, Red Bull have now got the outstanding car and also the standout driver in Max Verstappen. And I can mm. foresee him, we. I asked on the podcast last year could he break the World Championships record by the time his, his contract ends in 2028 um, obviously that would be foreseeing long into the future but I'd say that they are looking very strong, they've got excellent foundations for the years ahead also, fun fact, Adrian Newey um, went to the University of Southampton, which of course is our our alumni. Oh, it's our
1: yeah, a home. We did indeed. Yeah, in fact, yeah. It's aerospace engineering and uh, uh, other engineering disciplines is Southampton's thing. So mm-hmm. I'll never forget yes. uh, walking past the. Uh, it's just uh, I digress here. We're walking past the um, the engineering department, and uh, I, I happened to stop and chat to uh, one of the other uh, students standing outside a garage and we were just talking about formula 1 and he was like oh you know we have a we have a car in the garage if you want to take a look so i said like, oh yeah okay i'll i'll come with you he opened it up and they had mm. uh, an ac cobra which they converted into an electric car and it was called the ac dc and i really enjoyed that <laughs> <laughs> very, clever,
0: nice. very clever very clever so, with time short then, gents, let's go through our winners from further down the grid and our losers from further down the grid. Who stood out for all the right and wrong reasons? Angus.
2: I'm, for one of my winners, I'm going to go with... I'm actually going to go with Lance Stroll. I'm going to carry on the point from <laughs> when I mentioned earlier about how... Uh, yeah, I know, I know, shocking. About how he's had such a upturn in form... um Since Alonso came in, based on the fact that when he was with Vettel, previous years with Perez, he would often be miles off the pace in qualifying and you'd be wondering if he was justifying his place in the sport. Um, But I think that finally, in his seventh year in Formula 1, he may have finally started to realise any potential he may have had. Um, And despite his retirement, I think he's looking like he could have a strong season. Maybe podiums could be on on the cards. For Mr. Stroll. In terms of loser, I'm going to go with Yuki Sonoda. Now, admittedly, mm. his pace has been quite strong so far this season. Uh, I believe he's outqualified, yes he has, outqualified Nick DeVries 2 for 2 so far. Admittedly, DeVries being a rookie in a new team, but Sonoda has shown decent pace in the races which he's driven in both of them uh, he was unlucky to miss out on points in Bahrain finishing in 11th uh, just one second behind Alex Albon and again in Saudi Arabia he held that he got into a strong position off the safety car uh, after a lowly grid position of 16th he held 10th for a while and then was pipped by just 2.6 seconds by Kevin Magnussen uh, giving Haas their first point ahead of Alpha Tauri um, so two people there who, admittedly, you might not have uh, think would have strong seasons, but Lance Stroll definitely went out. Disp- and Yuki Sonoda a loser simply because his pace that he's shown you think would have uh, merited points, but it was not to be. So he stays in the losers for me so far.
1: Yeah, definitely some left field observations there. And what I liked about them was they were... Uh, not so obvious. They kept me guessing. So that's always nice, isn't it? My my biggest winner, actually. Well, one of the biggest winners, I think, aside from the clear and obvious Paris and Verstappen and Alonso, is the person who went in fourth place, very briefly third place, but they uh, they decided he, he was going to be demoted back down to fourth. And that's George Russell. You know, a very, very solid qualifying, qualified in the end in third place because of Charles Leclerc and his 10-second penalty because of of Ferrari being Ferrari and deciding, again, to to lose two races after just one race. And he he kind of kept out of trouble. There was that little bit of of drama when he was ahead of... Hamilton and Hamilton was in the mediums but George kind of kept the pace and I don't know whether or not you agree that he should have stayed in front is is just down to personal opinion but I think he did really well he showed that the Mercedes still had some pace left in it not as much as the Red Bulls Mm. but certainly enough to keep Mercedes in contention for second place and because of that good result Mercedes is now drawing on the level points with Aston Martin, and that's not something perhaps we would have thought. So he did capitalize there on on the opportunities that were around him, and, and I think that makes him one of the the winners. Unfortunately, onto the other side, ah, oh, there was I think the the the, the biggest loser t- for me of someone who actually finished the race was Bottas. What they were doing oh, over yeah. there, oh, I have no idea. Alfa Romeo mm. just, well, they, I just don't know what they were doing. I think they they were. T- deferring the uh, instructions to the magic Ouija board, you know, oh, what do we do? Oh, we'll pit him again, shall we? They um, <laughs> Yeah, they pitted Bottas on lap 9, 17, 35, and 49. Mm. Uh, just absolute ridiculous strategy. So he went for the very unusual strategy of a medium-hard, medium-soft. Which, by the way, didn't work! <laughs> and he was in mm. last place. So yeah, I think Bottas um, he had it wasn't necessarily all all his fault but fundamentally just one of the biggest losers great potential um after a relatively solid qualifying performance but unfortunately it's his team random decided he what they wanted to make him go from 14th place down to uh, 18th
0: very strong choices, I'll keep it brief in Mind Winners, gotta be Kevin Magnussen and Haas. Points, hooray, you can't say better than that, can you, from a, a P13 qualification place. Work to do there, converted that against Yuki Tsunoda, against his teammates as well against uh, Jaeguan Yu, someone who was sniffing around the points for a bit as well qualified just below it so um, congratulations to Haas getting off the mark is so important particularly when you consider how congested it is in the midfield, particularly in the sort of lower quartile or third of this constructors championship as well um so congratulations to them hopefully there's more of that to come flipping it on its head though to the losers i mean we can't end this podcast without talking about mclaren we'll talk about them in much more detail come the next episode but excellent qualifying pace from oscar piastri p8 down to p15 norris p19 to p17 they were scrapping around, which normally you're used to seeing that happening in some capacity in the signs and Norris era at least at the top of the grid, going for points. Podiums even. No, at the very bottom, and things are getting you know from bad to worse really when it comes to McLaren's season so far we thought to ourselves is the Bahrain Grand Prix of last week or the weeks gone by going to be similar to last season yeah a bad start but they get better but it's gone from worse to worse and do you think to yourselves where did McLaren go from here because I think what makes it worse as well is the fact they qualified so well or uh, Oscar Piastri did at least a rookie in the sport doing so well on the Saturday then failing to convert and being essentially propping up everyone else when it comes to the timesheet by Bottas and a few others. Really sad to see and I think there's going to be some harsh tough questions being asked uh, higher up the hierarchy in uh, McLaren because hey, Piastri didn't join this team to be fiddling around the back and um, Norris as well he's a high thought about driver he could go elsewhere, He, you know, he's probably thinking about that as well so time to have some change I think at McLaren in somewhere or the other but we remain to see whether this is just another blip or Another bad performance or well, this is a, a trend really. And on that note, it seems that's all we've got time for in terms of episode five of F1 in Review 2023. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end of this episode, be that on your preferred podcast provider of choice or elsewhere. A reminder that you can follow us on Twitter and TikTok, our handle being F1 in Review, just that. And those aware or unaware will know that there's no F1 action coming this weekend. There's a break, but we'll be back next week to look forward to round three, that being the uh, Australian Grand Prix in Melbourne and also dissecting a lot more about what happened at the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix let's just say Mercedes McLaren Ferrari Alpine may come up in conversation until next time thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time